Father, thank you for this time now, and we pray indeed that our hearts would be prepared to hear, to receive what you're saying to us. Help us to see Jesus here more clearly and to see what this means in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes things get worse before they get better. Whether you're a nation, a government, a church, a family, an, an individual struggling on at work or at school or thinking, you know, this has got to be it now. It can't get any worse. And then it does. Of course, at this point, the non-Christian doesn't really have anywhere to go with that thought, you know, because actually, if you're not a Christian, well, life is just one long series of random events, most of which, despite our best efforts, is entirely out of, outside of our control. But when stuff goes wrong, well, what do you have then? You just have the kind of bleak worldview of people like Richard Dawkins, who uh, says things like this. Richard Dawkins says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. Do you see? There's no God. Well, there's no one to complain to. You can't go and ask for your money back. It is just life. But for the Christian, it's different, isn't it? There's a sense, actually, that the Christian may feel, well, no, I, 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 I can complain. I kind of want to complain. Because when things get worse and not better, the Christian can cry out and know, well, there is a God who hears me. And so the Christian can say, well, what is going on then? Why is this happening? I don't like this. It's not fair. One of my favourite bands is Muse. I don't know if anyone else here is a fan of Muse. They're kind of about 20, 25 years old now. They're still going. They're still just produce, released another album. They've got an absolute stadium roof raiser, if that's a phrase, from about 15 years ago, called Knights of Sidonia. Absolute classic. And the words say this. Come ride with me through the veins of history. I'll show you how God falls asleep on the job. That's poetry, isn't it? Real poetry. But it expresses, doesn't it? It expresses how people often feel. You know, where is God? And it goes on. It says, how can we win when fools can be kings? No comment on that line. Don't waste your time or time will waste you, which is actually nicked straight out of Richard II, Shakespeare, as it turns out. But you get the point. You see, where is God when it hurts and when it's getting worse? Is he asleep? Does he care? Is he malevolent even? Is he what we call a bad actor in this situation, in this universe? Well, last week we saw God begin this great rescue out of Egypt as he rescued his people through judgment and from judgment. With the judgment on the in, in these plagues that culminated in the tenth plague, the plague on the firstborn, and Pharaoh and the Egyptians saying, finally, go, get out. We can't have you here anymore. And so they begin to leave. But what happens next is curious. So just before the reading that we heard, picking up at verse 17 in, in chapter 13, on page 70, if you just glance at that, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them 
on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So where did God lead them then? Well, he led the people round by the desert road towards the Red Sea. So, and then a few verses on, end of chapter 13, God guides them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they're kind of being led around, but they're not going the most obvious way. So what's going on? Why is this happening? And beginning of our reading, chapter 14, verse 2, God says to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Now, what is going on here is that God is apparently deliberately leading them into a dead end. So that verse 3, Pharaoh hears of this and thinks, well, oh, look, the Israelites, they've got lost. They're hemmed in. So, in other words, we can go and get them. And so that's what they do. So down verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And the people of Israel come up with this list of things that they're very afraid of and it's very human. So verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? You know, what, what have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, in the cold light of day, you can examine those statements and sort of go, well, that's completely crazy and totally irrational, isn't it? You know, have you brought us here to die? Well, no. They know from what God has said through Moses that he's brought them out to rescue them from slavery, of course. Is this not what we said in Egypt? Well, that's the first we've heard of it, if that's the case. Certainly, you know, in the way that the story is told, there was no idea that the Egyptians were quite happy in Egypt. It was the complete opposite. They were crying out to God in pain and suffering in their slavery. Uh, they certainly weren't saying, this is lovely and we'd rather stay here, thanks very much. But we know, don't we, if we've got any wisdom... But that's the kind of Mr. Spock response, isn't it? This is not logical, Captain. And it usually doesn't help in situations like this. See, the point is that they are terrified. They're terrified. And this is a very human response. We often come out with crazy things, don't we, when we are terrified by whatever the situation is. Things that in the cold light of day would say, well, that's obviously crazy that's what's going on here but what they're trying to grapple with is why has God brought us here why do things seem to be getting worse and not better because that's the trajectory that we thought we were on now what is going on has God fallen asleep on the job and verses 13 and 14 then are God's answer through Moses do not be afraid he says, do not be afraid. And we think, and the Israelites think, no, but we are afraid. We're very afraid. This is a frightening situation. You can't, you can't just say that. And so what he then says next shapes and explains the rest of this extraordinary episode with the parting of the Red Sea and so on. And so we're going to take just these two verses, 13 and 14, and just look at how they unlock everything else that goes on here. So, first of all, do not be afraid. 
see the Lord's deliverance. See the Lord's deliverance. You can follow this on the back of the notice sheet if you find that helpful. What we've seen so far, you see, looks like the opposite of deliverance. See, God appears to have led them into a trap. But it's, it's a little bit like the beginning of, of uh, John chapter 11 in the New Testament, so, which is the chapter about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I don't know if you're familiar with that, don't worry if you're not, but at the beginning of, of that chapter, the news reaches Jesus that Lazarus, his friend, is sick. And so the expectation is, like he's been doing with lots of other people, the expectation is that he's going to go and heal Lazarus. And uh, John, writing the gospel, says Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary. So when he heard he was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And we think, hang on a minute, did I read that right? You know, why didn't he just go straight away? If he loves him, you should just go and sort out the problem, surely. But Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. You see, the point there is that there is a bigger goal than the purely human-centered goal of making Lazarus better again or making him alive again after he dies. The point is so that people may see how great Jesus is as he raises Lazarus from the dead and so they can put their trust in him. And it's the same kind of thing going on here. So back in verse 4, we read of what God says he's, do he's doing. So verse 4, chapter 14 I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory. Same as in Jesus with Lazarus, isn't it? I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And verse 17 again. Um, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. See, we've seen this throughout the whole of Exodus, haven't we? And that's why we called this series Knowing God. Because the one at the centre of the story isn't us, it's not the Israelites, it's God. It's about God making himself known so that we know what he is like. And in order for him to show what he's really like, sometimes he takes the long road and not the short road. He takes the harder path, not the easy path. He takes the road that leads to a massive sea and apparently no way out. The point, the road that leads to human beings to the point where it looks like all hope is lost. That's the road that he takes. Because that, it turns out, is the road that enables us to see who God really is. And that is what we see here. So, verse 15, tell them to go into the sea, lift up your staff, stretch out your hands, divide the sea, and they will walk through on dry ground. And like in the plagues, he says, I will harden the Egyptians' heart, they will try to follow, they will be swallowed up. <clears throat> and then that is what happens. So, verse 21, the strong east wind blows all night, and it says they walk through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water to the right and a wall of water to the left. And this is probably the iconic scene of the book of Exodus, isn't it? You know, any film that has ever been made about 
Exodus, and I think it's quite a few, um, will have this in it. And it would be this kind of impossible, you know, how on earth do you film that? But they, they manage it. It gives rise even to this fantastic cartoon from the far side years ago. There it is. Moses standing in front of the mirror. Moses parts his hair. But it's that kind of thing, isn't it? It's this, this, this iconic thing that has gone into our, our culture that uh, we've sort of vaguely heard about. But it's the kind of thing that people uh, have tried over the years to find a non-miraculous explanation for. So people have written books and articles and all kinds of things trying to explain why this isn't, isn't quite as extraordinary as it looks. So you know the kind of thing. You know, people in those days, they were very gullible. But we know there's a rational explanation for everything. And so some people have said, <clears throat> do you know what? It wasn't the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea. Okay, so it was a shallow, reedy marsh, in other words. And so basically what's going on here, you see, is basically... They paddled through a kind of shallow uh, reedy marsh, and then maybe it rained a bit, and then the Egyptians coming behind in their chariots, and they couldn't follow. That's, that's, it, that's it, and it's all been slightly exaggerated. There's a story that I heard of a, um, a, a liberal kind of preacher preaching on this, and he's telling the story of the Israelites going through the Red Sea, and a man in the congregation interrupts. We don't do that here, do we? But occasionally it happens. A man in the congregation interrupts, and he says, Praise the Lord, taking all these people through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. And the preacher says, No, 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 just please understand. It was a shallow marsh. You know, they just paddled through. It's not really a miracle. And so the man shouts back again, praise the Lord, drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. See, however you look at it, there is too much happening here to just sort of explain it all away as natural coincidence. And even by the time we get to the end of verse 20, uh, the, towards the end of the episode, verse 25, the Egyptians are acknowledging that. In fact, we're seeing what God said was his intention all along, that the Egyptians will see that he is the Lord, and that is what they confess. This is the Lord fighting for them against Egypt, they say. Verse 25. But after all, when you think about it, the point is, well, God is the creator of the universe. So, of course, he can do this if he wants to. And in fact, there are echoes of... God creating the universe all over this episode that happens and this miracle. So what is, you know, if you think back to Genesis chapter 1, which tells the, the, the account of the creation of the world um, in a particular way, and the way that it talks about God making the world is that he separates the water to create dry land. Okay? Ah, oh, no, that's kind of what's happening here, isn't it? And here he uses a wind and the word for wind here is the same as the word for spirit, same words. So back in Genesis chapter 1, the spirit is hovering over the waters in the opening verses of Genesis. And the same wind or spirit then after the, the flood in, with Noah in, in the early chapters of Genesis, the wind or the spirit blows away the water. So this is, this is the creator creating again but he then also uncreates here in judgment like we saw this with the plagues where they, they kind of reverse the pattern of ordered creation 
Because here, how does judgment come? The wall of water crashes down on the Egyptians. So water and land unseparate. Do you see? It's kind of uncreation judgment happening on the Egyptians. So this is God acting to create. And actually what he's doing here is he's creating a new people, separating out his people from the nations. He's acting in salvation and judgment. And throughout the Bible, this is the great event that, that, that God's people look back on to remember God's miraculous deliverance of his people. The great moment where we see who God is. The great moment, the greatest moment, until we get to the cross where Jesus died. Which for Christians is now where we look back to see God's deliverance. See, like with the Israelites facing the sea, it doesn't look like deliverance at first. It looks like the end when Jesus dies on the cross. Because death itself seems to be claiming God as man. And it looks like the armies of evil have cornered God's chosen one and they finally won. And the waters of death and judgment crashed on top of him like they crashed on top of the Egyptians here. But God miraculously opens up a way through death itself for his chosen one. And in the process, death itself is destroyed forever as Jesus rises from the dead. So don't be afraid. See God's deliverance. That's the first thing to see. When it feels like everything's got worse and not better, we need to see, first of all, that God is a God who finds ways through death and darkness and the waters of chaos. So don't be afraid. But back in verse 14, Moses then goes on, don't be afraid because the Lord will fight for you. Now it's very clear who's doing the fighting here. God is totally in charge. He hardens the Egyptians' hearts. He comes in the cloud between the Israelites and the Egyptians. He drives back the waves by his spirit wind. Verse 24, he throws the Egyptian forces <clears throat> into panic, clogging their wheels so that they had difficulty driving, lovely understatement. And then even the Egyptians themselves acknowledge what is going on. They say the Lord is fighting for them, but it, it gets worse. The Lord throws the Egyptians into the midst of the sea and they drown. And fast forward to chapter 15, the next chapter, and we get this great song of Moses and Miriam. So they look back on what has happened and what are they singing? Well, verse 1, they say, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. And verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Now, this is a song. It's a celebratory song. And we hear that and we think, it's pretty full on, isn't it? I mean, is it, is it really right for God to drown them? Is it really right to sing a song about it in celebration? But what we're seeing here is punishment that fits the crime. Because this isn't the first drownings that we've seen in Exodus. Remember back in chapter 1? See, drowning was what the Egyptian men were trying to do to every male Israelite child at the orders of Pharaoh. So do you see that? This is now what is happening to them. Do you see? So it's a kind of justice. 
And actually, in the Bible, justice is not something to feel embarrassed about, but something to celebrate. It's, see, it's good news that, that, that there is a God who will judge the world and will set things right. You know, as we often note, when we see this kind of teaching in the Bible, perhaps it's harder for us to appreciate this in the West for now. But if you're a Christian in North Korea or South Sudan or Iran or Afghanistan and you and your loved ones are living in fear for your lives because of your Christian faith, well, it's really good news to know that God takes that seriously and will act in judgment. There may be no human justice now in particular situations, but there will be divine justice then. Because that is who God is. That is what he is like. And that's what he's showing us about himself through this extraordinary act of judgment within history on the Egyptians. But in, in, in saying the Lord will fight for you, that doesn't leave God's people as mere spectators on what God is doing because he's fighting in order to deliver them, to give them a new start, to free them from slavery to their enemies. So in the New Testament, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, Paul calls this the baptism of the Israelites. He says this was their baptism. The Israelites were baptized in the Red Sea. They faced death, but they went through the sea that should have brought them death, and they came out the other side, delivered from their enemies for a new life on the eastern side of the sea. See, this is a picture of new life in Jesus Christ. As people often say, don't they? Everyone's said this to you, you know, if, if God just forgives our sin, what is there to stop us from just living how we like here and now? Because we're forgiven automatically, is what this sounds like. Well, that is forgetting that God is not just the one who forgives, but the one who delivers and fights for his people to bring them to new life on the other side of the sea. It's not something we do for ourselves. It is something God does for us. So do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. He will do the fighting. He will defeat his enemies, your enemies. He will bring you to the other side. So don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. Then finally, don't be afraid. You need only be still. You need only be still. This was the final part of God's instruction through Moses. See the Lord's deliverance. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Blaise Pascal, great, he has some great one-line quotes and, and, and much more than that besides, but he, he wrote that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Is that right? Well, human beings are activists, aren't we? We, we? we want to sort things out. And perhaps that's especially true in, in places of relative prosperity. You know, where we're surrounded by people who appear to have achieved security and prosperity through their own strivings and hard work and achievements. And so we assume our mentality tends to be, well, if there's a problem, it's going to be up to us to fix it. So the problem is that, like the Israelites, there are times when we face things that simply aren't fixable by human solutions and that will lead either to ever more frenzied activism that will only end when we destroy ourselves through exhaustion or, or kind of resigned despair that says, you know, well, who cares, what's the point, let's just give up now. But 
in the face of being cornered by the Egyptian army with the chariots bearing down on them, only the sea in front of them, can you, can you imagine how it feels to hear those words? You think, we've got to do something, we've got to do something. And he says, be still. You need only be still because the Lord will fight for you. And you think, you know, you must be mad. We've got to do something. You know, we can either fight or flee, but we, we must do something. And God says, no, you're just going to have to trust me. Rest and being still and even sleep. Actually, these are acts of faith, aren't they? Because they involve saying, life does not depend on me. I'm in his hands. My life depends on him. And so that means instead of becoming ever more frenzied by what is ultimately out of our control, we say, I'm going to trust that God has got this. Now, the thing to notice is, that it's not quite as simple as saying, therefore, do absolutely nothing. Because that's kind of, probably kind of what we hear, and then we think, oh, but that can't be right. That can't be right. Well, let's see what, what happens. You see, that, that, the Israelites don't actually do absolutely nothing, do they? In the very next verse, God tells them to go forwards. So it's be still, but then verse 15, go forwards into the sea. But you see, even that movement is an act of faith because it's a step into the unknown. In fact, if you, if you think about the situation that they're in, well, the crossing of the sea takes place at night. So verse 20, up till then, the, the cloud by, uh, by day and the fire by night had been in front of Israel, making the way ahead clear. But now that cloud, the presence of God leading them, that, that it moves behind the people of Israel, in between them and the Egyptians. And, and we're told in verse 20, it lights up the night, but it says from behind. So as they look out ahead, that means, well, it wouldn't be totally, we would see something, but you would see a kind of diminishing light as you go into the distance with the, with the destination unclear, a kind of black expanse before you. Can you imagine that? God says, go forwards into that. And that, that, that is faith that in another sense is still being still before God. Because the temptation at that point, once again, would be so, I'm not going to walk into that. It'll be crazy. I mean, you know, I, mean I can see that the, the, the waters have parted, but what if they come crashing down again when we're halfway across? I mean, you know, how do we know where we're going? How do we know what's waiting for us on the other side? See, human beings can always catastrophize any situation, can't we? And find the bad side of it and the, and the thing that might go wrong. But to trust God at this point means simply to obey him with what is in your control. Which is to put one foot in front of the other and move forwards. So obey him with what is in your control and trust him with everything else which is out of your control. Do you see how that is a great picture of Christian faith? You see, in our lives, if we're trusting Jesus, so often we struggle to do that and we want to have control over all of it ourselves. And we try to take responsibility for what is not our responsibility. 
So we have to keep thinking, what is my responsibility? What is God's responsibility? So when we're longing for a friend or a family member or a neighbour or a colleague to come to know Jesus, you know, maybe, maybe we, we're doing the, the pray for five that we've been talking about. Pray for five people that we long to come to know Jesus. Keep praying for them. And maybe we're doing that and we, uh, well, what is, what is our responsibility? Well, our responsibility is to make sure that people have appropriate opportunities to hear about Jesus. But it's God's job and his responsibility to change their hearts, isn't it? We can't do that and yet we, we fret with these things. But you need only be still, says God, trust me. If we're parents, see, our job is to be caring and loving parents now who point children to Jesus. But it's God's job to, to nurture their hearts so they come to faith and grow in faith and live for him. Trust me. See, so often we fret, if you're, if you're a parent, you know, we fret about, oh my goodness, all these things that I, I need to be in control. No, you're not in control. God's in control. Trust him. Maybe we're at school and uh, the, the, the world around us tells us, your future is in your hands and you're the only one who can determine that. It's up to you. But our lives and our futures actually are not in our hands. And of course it's important to take responsibility and to, to, to work hard with the things that we can work hard at. But just as important as that is learning how to trust God when life doesn't go according to plan. Because we're in his hands. And actually the sooner we learn to do that, the better. As we find that no matter how hard we work, things don't always turn out the way that we'd like them to be. Well, that's the world we live in. But we have a God we can trust as we face the unknown. We don't have to be totally in control of everything. You need only be still before this God. It's the same at work with all the responsibilities that we feel that we must meet and, and, and objectives that we have. It's the same everywhere, you see. So often the kind of stress and anxiety that we have comes from trying to control the things that are not our responsibility. They are in God's hands. So do you see? Sometimes things get worse before they get better. Sometimes God leads us to places that look impossible and unbearable and even deeply painful. But right here at the Red Sea, and even more so at the cross with Jesus, we see a God who says, look at who I am. The God who delivers miraculously. So that even if we go through death itself, or through lesser versions of death that look almost as terrifying and, and impossible to endure. Even if we go through those things, it turns out there is life on the other side because Jesus rose from the dead. See God's deliverance. We see a God who fights for his people, who ensures justice is done in the end, who brings us through that judgment too to a new life. 
We, are see, we see a God who says, you need only be still. And so the chapter ends, verse 30, verse 29. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. <clears throat> that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord And they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Now, there's a lot more to come in the story of God's people. It's not all plain sailing from here. Just a little spoiler for next time. Trust is going to be the issue, but trust is what we can do. Because God is the one who says, see my deliverance. I'm going to fight for you. So you need only be still. And that means you can go forwards and know, I'll be with you. Let's pray now. So, Father, we are humbled before you. As we remember that our lives are not our own, our lives are in your hands. This world is the world that you have made. You reign over everything. As we look out in the world around us, thank you that we can know that you are the creator God who has acted to bring rescue for those who trust in your son Jesus, justice for a world that looks so often out of control. But there is hope in your son. And so as we face things big or small in our lives this week and in the future, might we know that we can be still before you and trust you and go forwards knowing that you are with us. Amen. We're going to finish by singing of the wondrous story of God's salvation plan. We've been hearing about that this morning. We see it in Jesus. Let's stand and sing of that before we finish.
Great, please do take a seat. Well, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Please do stick around. It'd be lovely to chat. We've got teas and coffees at the back. And then if you do have children downstairs, please do remember to collect them at midday, so in about five minutes. Why don't I pray to finish? Reading from the last couple of verses from Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.